Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Network. Now your host, Jared Serbu. And thanks for being with us on this week's edition of On DoD. And on this week's show, we're back to one of my favorite topics, software management and software development in the Defense Department. Our guest this time is Jason Weiss. He was appointed back in January 2021 as DOD's first ever chief software officer within the DOD CIO's office. Mr. Weiss has decided he's ready to move back to the private sector, but he's got a lot to tell us about the good, the bad, and the ugly of that whole experience. Some of the ways DOD started to experiment with new funding models for software, some of the ways DevSecOps and software factories have started to permeate the department. We'll also talk a bit about the department's new software modernization strategy, which he was very involved in crafting. Jason, thanks for doing this. And, you know, obviously you're in the unique position of having been DOD's first ever chief software officer. So you got to, in some ways, probably write the job description as you went. Let's start there. What did what did the department tell you you were going to be doing when you first started back last January? And how did that end up changing? What did the job actually end up being compared to what you thought you'd be doing? Yeah, great question, Jared. So when we when we look at the, the journey, there was uh, a lot of history behind the modernization effort taking place at the DoD. And at, at first, it was going to be a predominantly cloud-centric role and then it, it kind of morphed into something uh, far greater than, than just the cloud. Uh, coming into the position, it was understood that this was not going to be a billet where I would actively code or I would be uh, actively procuring technology for the DOD. It was all about uh, policy and guidance and bringing my entrepreneurialism and commercial expertise to bear and help the, the department advance its software initiatives, and in particular, its modernization efforts. Uh, and that is really quite far-ranging if you think about it, right? We have to cover everything from business systems over here on one side of the continuum to uh, classified weapons platforms over here on the other side. So it's uh, uh, when I talk about the importance of understanding the big picture, it, it really is understanding that you have to address everything in this role from an ERP or a travel reimbursement system to uh, the most state-of-the-art technology going into uh, uh, into a weapons platform somewhere, and so that's quite a uh, quite a, a span of real estate to try and, and cover. But uh, I was up for it. Uh, I was uh, eager to take the challenge, even though I knew I wouldn't be writing code. And uh, it was it was a great team that I was coming into. So it it really is a team sport. Yeah, and you've very well anticipated my next question, which is, as, as you came into this role, how do you start to conceptualize what the DoD software enterprise is, to the extent it even is just one thing, since it does span all the way from mainframes running COBOL or assembly language, probably still, to uh, DevSecOps, to systems running on, on actual, no kidding, fighter jets? Yeah, one of the greatest lines that I heard coming into this position was this particular technology was written before Voyager 2 launched and demonstrates the staying power of COBOL in the Department of Defense. And it's at that moment, you kind of have this epiphany that, oh, wow, I'm, I'm not just covering software that was created and defined even a decade ago. I'm, I'm going back several decades in terms of the real estate that has to be covered. And so I think... Uh, that realization and appreciation that when we talk about modernization, we're not talking necessarily about just technical debt that was acquired over the last year. We're, we're truly talking about 
ecosystems that by law, because of the color of money problem, they can use dollars for sustainment only. Uh, and when you have dollars by law that says you can only use for sustainment, that means you can't even apply a design pattern to try and modernize part of that application using that color of money. And so the problems are quite complex. Uh, and because they're statutory, uh, as we like to say, a directive type memo never trumps uh, a statute. <laughs> so you, your, your hands are often tied and you have to really get creative about how you approach certain problem sets here. Let's stick with the color of money problem, because I, I think it's a really interesting one and, and one that the department has at least a window to maybe start proving that it can solve with the BA-8 pilots. I, I've been a little puzzled how, I don't want to say timid, but it, it seems like the department could have been a little bit more aggressive to push more systems into those pilots to try to show some wins. Frankly, I don't understand why the whole color of money barriers don't just go away completely tomorrow for all software systems. But what have you seen if anything that you can say that, that that starts to prove that that can work without diminishing the the oversight role that, that Congress obviously wants to protect? Yeah, I think when we look at the historical scaffolding that was put in place around the way the DoD procures systems, it was by and large hard, hardware-centric. When we had uh, aircraft carriers and satellites, uh, the ideal situation is you only uh, – uh, only create that keel once uh, on a ship, right? Uh, when we look at software, the ramifications of, oh gosh, that algorithm isn't exactly what I need. I need to pivot that. Uh, that can be done in a two-week sprint in a very rapid pivot. And I think that is fundamental to eliminating the color of money issue around software. And that conclusion was further codified with the software is never done study from the defense industrial base, right? That title alone says it, software is never done. So it never actually goes into sustainment. And when we look at the opportunities that are out there for us to demonstrate progress, I, I think that the department as a whole, and I've heard this from the software factories uh, that I've talked to uh, on multiple occasions, we have trouble reducing things into bite-sized tasks sometimes. Uh, we want to look at a set of requirements and say all of these requirements need to be present, and we're not capable as an organization to effectively prioritize and recognize that just because something has been deprioritized doesn't mean that it's not a valid requirement. It just means that the warfighter has said, hey, I need this first and foremost, then I need this. And oftentimes we see uh, feedback coming into us here in DOD CIO that sometimes programs and the oversight of those programs continue to struggle with this concept. They say it all has to be present or we can't proceed. And I think when we look at the, the conversation around money and you look at the software ecosystem and how malleable it is compared to something complex like hardware, there's a lot more room there for freedom of navigation than what we as a department are willing to give it. Uh, even under the current constructs of Title X. There, there obviously are examples where, where programs or software factories have been able to, as you said, break things down into bite-sized chunks and do continuous delivery types of things. Based on what you've seen in, the, in this role over the past year and change, what are the sorts of things that enables that to happen and what are the sorts of things that inhibit that? Are, are they organizational constructs? Is it funding issues? All of the above? Where, where, 
to the extent there have been successes, what have it enabled those? Yeah, I would say that there are two things in particular that have enabled the successes that I, I think are amazing within the DoD. And the first is uh, senior rank uh, individuals who actually speak software, who understand the nuances of software and understand things like software containerization uh, and orchestration of containers. That ability to uh, be able to speak in that language and bridge the gap between uh, the engineer that's actually doing the work as an individual contributor and the various oversight committees. And the the second part is the politics and how uh, suave that particular leader might be, understanding that they need to create a groundswell of support uh, and fundamentally recognize when it's time to compromise on something and add a little bit of overhead that might slow the process down in the name of moving things forward. Uh, and we see that quite often where we have these pockets of success, that it really is expertise in the senior rank. Uh, and second, that ability to actually reach out across the organization, create that grassroots foundation of support and smartly compromise uh, in the name of continuing progress forward. And I just want to be clear, when you say expertise in the senior ranks, are you talking about within the IT community itself or in, in more senior general uh, military leadership positions or both? So it's, it's definitely both. And in particular, I'm thinking about the 06 and above uh, part of the, of the service. When we look at uh, organizations like Kessel Run, what Colonel Bichkowski has been able to do over there is, is phenomenal, right? He demonstrates uh, and epitomizes that type of senior leadership that uh, both is fluent in technology and understands the, uh, the lingo, as well as has that ability to reach out across the organization to partner with folks across the aisle and everywhere from DOT&E uh, to other parts of the Air Force to ensure that progress is made. And it doesn't actually stall for an extended period of time because of uh, what could be perceived from an outsider looking in as uh, uh, a fundamental shortcoming of our processes here at the DOD. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that is just digital natives kind of aging into those roles. Is it is it more of a mindset, or do you need somebody with formal training who knows how to code sitting in an 06 billet? So I don't, I don't believe that they need to have formal training, but I do think that they need to have exposure to that technology and have a passion. We see a lot of junior officers out there that I've interfaced with uh, during my time here at DOD that uh, took a couple of computer science classes while they were in school and have been able to, on the side, apply those principles and techniques to help them in their day job. And it, it really resonates with me personally. My backstory, when I joined the Navy right out of high school as a cryptologic technician and deployed during the first Gulf War overseas, uh, I had access to uh, a database. And of course, it was a different era. The uh, the admin passwords hadn't been changed, but my ability to go, hey, I'm repeating this over and over. I'm going to automate this. I'm going to make the lives of myself and other people who sit this watch uh, during different parts of the watch cycle easier. You, you could do that. And, and I think that's what we really see happening again today with a lot of the, the junior officers in particular. They're looking at these problems and they're going, I, I know how to do a little bit of data science and a little bit of coding to make life better for for me and my shipmates uh, in the Navy, as an example. 
Jason Weiss is DOD's first-ever chief software officer. He's decided to move back to the private sector after about 14 months on the job. More of his observations after a short break on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbian. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DOD. I'm Jared Serbu, and we're talking with Jason Weiss, the Defense Department's first-ever chief software officer who's decided to move back to the private sector. He's talking with us about some of his observations about his tour as the CSO. And, and Jason, before the break, we talked a bit about um, some of your thoughts about the leadership portions of the workforce and, and how they matter here. Want, want to take this one level down and get your impressions of the DOD software workforce which is obviously not just one thing, but what's been your assessment of how ready the rank and file who do code throughout the department, you know, whether that's civilians, contractors, military, how ready they are to embrace agile mindsets and processes? Because a lot of them do have a background in the old waterfall world. Are, are they ready to make the transition if leadership lets them? I think the key is that last phrase there. If, if leadership enables them and empowers them to be successful, I, I think they can make the journey. Uh, everybody was doing waterfall before there was agile, right? Uh, it, we all had to go through that journey at some point in our career, at least those of us with chronological credibility, like uh, like myself. That's a fancy way for saying I'm old. Uh, if you look at that journey and that 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 transition, there is a period of time uh, where you go through a, a little bit of chaos. You, you go from knowing something and feeling comfortable to very uneasy and discontent about how these new processes and these new terms around agile work to finally understanding the power and getting back to that uh, equilibrium state. And that, uh, that valley of death uh, is, is quite daunting. And if you don't have support from leadership, from the program management office, from uh, the different parts of the DOD ecosystem that all have a say, it can get really dicey really quickly. And we see that in cases like uh, where we have software factories that are outside of the, the traditional acquisition cycle. Uh, there is a, a natural tension that forms between them and they're still not speaking the same language with one another. And on paper, they've all been through different training around agile, but yet we're still having a disconnect there. So I think broadly speaking, the rank and file is going to be able to make the transition, but more specifically, we need to make sure that the uh, the environment is safe to make that transition. And that requires all parties, whether it's acquisition, uh, DOT and E, the actual engineering, the research labs, all of these teams that work together to field cutting edge capabilities for the warfighter all have to buy into it concurrently. It's hard to do it piecemeal. And, and do you have a sense that that large sections of that workforce are going to need a good deal of upskilling and reskilling, or is is coding coding and you can succeed at this if you're working in the right structure? Well, it's not just coding, and I think that's what's really important to understand when you look at project. Uh, when you look at the traditional DoD project. What we really need to do, in my opinion, is shift to this idea, especially around software, that it's a product. Uh, just as we say that software is never done, uh, you can't have a project around software because project implies that there's a start date and an end date. At some point, you call that project successful. And if software is never done, it can't be a project. And so you look at value stream mapping 
and you look at the educational uh, appetite of our workforce, they, they want to have more education. And I think in many places, they need to have more education. We've seen uh, a lot of data coming out of uh, ANS that showcases not only the, the hunger for this knowledge, but also the, the distance that we still have to travel as an organization to get folks uh, all of the education that they need to be successful beyond simply writing code. Just speaking the language of, a, of an agile sprint and understanding the value of a retrospective, that has nothing to do with Java or Python or Go or any other programming language. That's about creating that culture that is agile. Um, software factories have come up a couple times, and I definitely want to spend a bit of time on that, just partly because they're such a central piece of the new software modernization strategy that I know you worked on. What's your assessment of the the quality of work that's been coming out of those factories writ large? And then talk a bit about where DoD currently sees those factories' role in the overall software ecosystem going forward. Yeah, so the quality in uh, in the software factories that I've been exposed to uh, is is very high. At this point, we're at, at 30 software factories that have a name assigned to them and growing. Uh, I haven't actually toured and visited every one of those, so I can't speak about all of them. But the ones that I have had close relationships with and communicate with on a regular basis, basis they, they put out some um, amazing code that is state-of-the-art. It'll rival anybody out there. Uh, second, I, I think that it's important to recognize that in all of those cases, the industrial base plays a key role. This isn't just government coders writing government code. And I think that that's important because our industrial base partners must help us make this journey. Industry and the private sector play a key role in advancing software. And so to the second part of your question, the DOD's perspective on software factories writ large uh, we recognize that we can't do this alone, but that doesn't mean that the business models that have been used for massive hardware weapons acquisitions of the past are going to be applicable to the software factories of tomorrow. And that is a particular challenge that I think the major primes are really struggling with. If you look at the, uh, the major, let's say the top 10 primes that are out there for the DOD, uh, is there any one of them that you might stand out and go, yeah, they could they could rival Google engineers or Amazon Web Service engineers uh, or Microsoft engineers. And in, in my humble perspective, the answer is probably not. And that's where I think the small business and the smaller uh, aspect of the industrial base coming in to help when you have the smaller company that's 50 people, 100 people, they're more nimble. They have more expertise in cloud native software development. Uh, and they're going to be able to help us substantially, but it is a different construct. It is a different business model. And so as the DoD aspires to drive the adoption of software factories across the organization, uh, it's yet to be determined exactly where the primes will fit into the software factory ecosystem. Yeah, that, that's that's a really interesting point because, I mean, they're, they're, they're almost captive to the way DoD's been doing things because the, the 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 old waterfall method is what they've been asked to do for the last several decades. So do you see them, their role in the overall ecosystem receding a little more into the background and the smaller companies playing a bigger role, at least when it comes to software development? In the terms of framing it around software development, I think we already see that playing out. If you look at platform one, there is no obvious prime contractor 
supporting Platform One. It's a large number of smaller vendors. And when they are onboarded, they're actually paired with programmers from other organizations so that there is that discomfort and that there is redundancy uh, around that ecosystem. What's important for the large primes, primes, in my opinion, is understanding that we're still going to need the larger weapons platforms. We're still going to need the hardware and the investments that they have made in highly specialized labs, which justify their rates that they submit to the government uh, and the DOD in particular, we still need that capability. So it's going to be important for the DOD and the industrial base to come together to find that correct balance between them because we need both. It has to be a both and conversation, not an either or conversation. Yeah. So it sounds like this is, uh, you can do some tailoring here. There's different parts of the industrial base that'll do different kinds of things rather than the large primes doing most of it. Indeed. And I think that that's going to be a mind shift for the large primes because they see uh, all of the, the attention of something like Platform One or Kessel Run. And I think from my perspective, they kind of feel like they're being uh, left out. And to an extent, they probably are because they aren't aligning with the types of experts that we're looking to bring in. The expertise in the prime we need on some of the, the other harder issues like electronic warfare algorithms, for example. Uh, the idea that uh, something that's measured in, uh, in microseconds is, uh, is great, but when you start getting down even the smaller buckets of that, when you're talking about electronic warfare, that's probably not where you're going to be going and seeing a lot of uh, cloud native uh, cloud hyperscalers actually playing during a, a sortie uh, in the middle of a battle. Uh, it's going to be disconnected. And so that expertise to tune those algorithms and extract every ounce of performance out of that custom hardware, that custom chip, is going to remain critical for the DoD. Jason Weiss is DoD's first ever chief software officer, now departing the department after that tour to head back to the private sector. He's back with us for one more segment after a quick break. This is on DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Survey. Thanks for listening to On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbu. A few more minutes with Jason Weiss, who's leaving the Defense Department after serving a 14-month stint as the department's first-ever chief software officer. And Jason, I want to go back to the software modernization strategy just a little and, and talk some more about the software factories. Um, what, what, in your view, does the department need to do to, to make the quality of work that has been coming out of those that you talked about more of the norm throughout DOD without having a hundred different identical software development DevSecOps pipelines overlapping and duplicating each other? Where's where's the goodness here where you can have some of these things sort of synergize together while making it, again, more of the norm? Yeah, I think there's uh, there's there's two parts to that, right? The first is we need to agree that we can share technology and software components in particular between software factories without having to go through a lengthy accreditation process. And what we see is progress starting to be made there with this idea of the continuous ATO and with things like the software container governance task force that was spun up. These 
activities are intended to really showcase and say, look, here's a component. This is what it looks like. And this is how the cybersecurity posture has been uh, reviewed and accepted. Don't redo all that work. Embrace that in your mission as you need it and go forward and build on top of that. And, and what we see across the services today is a combination of a language barrier uh, where one service is using different terminology from another service and they're talking past each other. And the DOD writ large has a problem in actually advertising between the different services what capabilities are available. There was a very thought-provoking uh, data experiment, a, a hackathon that took place in January out at Nellis Air Force Base that the Air Force did. And it, it really highlighted the problem that we face. If you think about an aircraft in particular, I believe if I get the numbers right, 95% of the aircraft is unclassified, 5% is at the secret level, but they're all special access programs. They're all restricted. And so the idea of somebody that has a ticket to access F-35 data, F-22 data, F-A-18 data, and submarine data in order to merge those together and do something novel with it is simply not possible in the DOD today. We don't have anybody with all of those tickets. And so what that means is that uh, we are at a disadvantage in terms of promoting the software that's coming out of these factories and saying, here's something that's accessible, go use it everywhere and use this data and feed those requirements back into the factory if you need a, a pivot, if you need a new API, if you need a, a new way to look at that data, those lines of communication simply don't exist because of the way that we silo our different programs at the DoD. And that's, that's problematic. It's, it's not always about the quality of software, it's simply access to the data and to the software that, that's the bigger challenge. But, but writing, r developing software in a sort of decentralized chunk by chunk fashion, it seems like it, it's tailor made to get around some of the problems that you just talked about, right? Because if you're writing an application to perform a very particular discrete function and, and do it well, you don't necessarily need to know exactly how it's going to fit into the F-35 or how the other, all the other pieces of the F-35 come together. So can't you do, can't you have people working on individual components of this and sharing code across those components without necessarily knowing where it's going to end up or even needing to know where it's going to end up? Yeah, fundamentally that's accurate, but where is the discovery mechanism? And that's what the DOD is struggling with. We don't really have a mechanism for publishing a catalog of software components, a catalog of APIs. And that's the fundamental problem. You know, you can absolutely mash, we call it mashing, right? You can mash together different components and then create new uh, thought-provoking and compelling software systems from that. But if you don't know where those components exist and you don't know how to download them and there's no documentation that you're allowed to access on the APIs, how do you even begin that journey? And that's the fundamental problem that we have to overcome. The API task force that's being led uh, by an action officer working group, uh, uh, especially in, in particular ANS is talking about this today as it relates to JADC2. If we aspire to actually have joint, then that means we need to be able to find these different components no matter where they live. And today that's a massive shortfall in the DoD. There is no place for me to go publish what components are available and allow folks to download that easily. 
um, related to sharing code across the department. Want to talk about what you think the right approach is to actual open source uh, in, in the department. I think that's an issue that you also worked on during your time as, as chief software officer. Where does open source play here? Open source is critical. Uh, there's a lot of statistics out there that talk about uh, everywhere from 70 to 80 percent of any given application uh, is built on open source. And then there's the secret sauce that's sprinkled on top. Where I think the DoD needs to be smarter about open source is actually the, the contribution back and actually partnering with these critical open source projects. We now have a definition from the, the cyber executive order that talks about identifying what critical software is, especially as it relates to national security systems. We know where we have these areas that we are going to depend on this software. We should actively be participating in those ecosystems. And today, I believe we're, we're predominantly passive as a department and by and large as a government. And when I say active participation, I mean even things like uh, providing a, a contract to a team that's going to go out there and pen test uh, something like a web server or an orchestrator and providing that information back out to the community with the appropriate insight on how we need to fix this open source software to make it secure, not just for the DOD, but for all of the companies that adopt this. And I think this is something that the, uh, the summit, the open source summit at the White House tried to really get to, and that is it's time for us to recognize everybody, the commercial entities, the government entities, and those that are giving their own free time, their evenings and their weekends to create this tech, we all need to come together and make it better. Does the department need to get better about sharing internally before any of that really becomes real? Or can you sort of work the two in parallel? Absolutely in parallel. I don't think that there's a dependency on one before the other. Uh, for example, we uh, as we talk about the software bill of materials and the different standards there, there's opportunities where nobody really in the commercial sector or the DOD has figured out how we're going to be consuming SBOMs quite consistently. And so there's room there to, uh, to look at that ecosystem, to put code out there from our labs uh, and to partner while simultaneously finding the money to actually stand up. The, the type of ecosystem that we need to share internally as well. Um, running short on time here, I, I want to get to one last thing before we let you go, which is just to talk about what you think you've left behind as the first DoD chief software officer. You, you mentioned in a LinkedIn post announcing your departure that you you hope the scaffolding, as you put it, is is useful for the next chief software officer. What is that scaffolding that you think you left so I think first and foremost is a degree of transparency. I, I came into a position description uh, last year that said there's going to be a lot of outreach. And, and I think outreach is something that the department needs to work better on. Uh, just the transparency and helping folks understand what it takes to coordinate a directive type memo, uh, the amount of responses and, and people going, wow, I had no idea it was that complex. I thought you could just snap your fingers and achieve something. Uh, I think transparency is is one of those things that I hope whoever sits in this bullet next embraces. I think the, the second thing that I, I hope they understand is that uh, we need to absolutely look at having an honorable uh, who is vetted by Congress that is dedicated to software. And that is important because uh, the CIO gives software a fractional bit of attention. They're responsible for spectrum. They're responsible for desktop services. They're responsible for budget certification. 
to think about custom software development is at best a fractional attitude. Uh, and that's just the nature of the job. Anything that uh, the next CSO can continue to drive forward that uh, software requires some authorities and it requires somebody who's 100% focused on advancing uh, the department's position in a software-defined world is going to be critical. And I'd like to look at the, the memo from the Deputy Secretary of Defense and the software modernization strategy as forming the bedrock from which those arguments can be made going forward. Is that honorable title important mainly because it gives you, I don't know, more power of persuasion? Or did you feel like during your time in this role you needed more authority to actually tell people to go do things? Uh, it's absolutely, I needed more authority to be able to tell people. Uh, at some point in time, when you look at the amount of uh, coordination that has to occur uh, and the time spent on that for something that's relatively trivial, uh, having an honorable to be able to go straight to a different organization and agree at that level and come top down uh, is going to be vital. And it, it breaks the silo walls down that you see today. You know, I had very little influence in organizations outside of DOD CIO, uh, which is where my billet sat. And so that honorable title actually allows you to operate at a higher level and advocate for software-defined environments and the impact those have on the DOD. Jason Weiss is DOD's first ever chief software officer. He's decided to move back to the private sector after about 14 months on the job. One more break, and we'll finish up this edition of the show by getting some thoughts on IT modernization from the Navy and the Marine Corps. This is On DoD on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. I'm Jared Serbin. Back on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. The Navy is well on its way to moving its email and productivity services to a commercial cloud, and the Marines are already there. As more and more of the Sea Service's IT offerings migrate from their own data centers to commercial environments, there are a lot of implications for their technology workforce. Aaron Weiss is the Department of the Navy's CIO, and Jennifer Edgen is the Marine Corps' Assistant Deputy Commandant for Information. At this year's Navy League Sea Air Space Conference, they talked with me about the workforce aspect of network modernization. You know, I think the big change as you move to provided capability in lieu of created capability, right? So as we start to consume uh, cloud-delivered capability and compute capacity, uh, it moves us into an environment where we're more focused on the outcome and we are more focused on, if you will, the product of the information environment and, and thinking about it. And we've begun the conversation uh, within the department uh, on that product management mindset uh, in sort of an agile approach where we're thinking about need versus kind of big R requirement. We're thinking about the demand signal uh, from the Navy and Marine Corps uh, in terms of capability versus, uh, you know, we took it through a, a, a committee or we took it through a governance board. And, you know, I, I think it, it continues to up the, the, the clock speed and, the, and our ability to respond. Uh, and so we're going to look for uh, you know, a workforce that's able to manage not at the technical each's level, but at the outcome and capability level. 
doesn't mean we don't need to focus on the technical side of this, but it's going to allow us to be much more responsive uh, from a demand signal side. It'll present challenges on the workforce end because we're going to uh, have to bring people along and allow them to evolve and retool to that place, but it'll be a huge opportunity as well. Uh, it'll allow us to be more closely aligned with how industry uh, views and makes use of technology capability in the same way. Uh, and it'll help uh, provide us a hook to keep people engaged. Uh, and so I think it's an exciting transition, but it's one that uh, we're going to have to work very hard uh, to understand and reach out to people and to uh, help move them in that way of thinking. It's early stages for that transition, but um, it, it is going to be an important transformation. Jenny, different thoughts on Marine Corps workforce needs? Uh, so building on, on the, the, what uh, Aaron said here, uh, really what we're trying to do is show a pathway. Uh, and show a pathway, and that pathway can look a little different for our uniformed Marines and our civilians, um, and because we want to create an environment where folks can adapt and grow. For civilians, that could look like coming into the government for a couple of years, going back out to industry, doing some things in industry, and really offering kind of those flexibilities uh, back and forth. So this is challenging kind of that traditional government mindset of you're hired in like right out of college and you retire uh, 20, 30, 40 years uh, later. Um, there's a lot of, uh, so that's in and out of government, but also within the government. How do we have experiential opportunities to move uh, some time in the Marine Corps over to the Dawn, to the Navy, other services to offer those career roadmaps and uh, pathways. So we want our particular civilian workforce to feel uh, when they come in to uh, work with the Marine Corps, there is, it's the land of opportunities. Uh, and to be able to uh, fur, uh, further those opportunities and, and create that really a great place to work. Uh, for our uniform Marines, the 17XX uh, modernization is just uh, really our, our, our ticket to uh, success and modernization there uh, because uh, it, it offers a uh, uniform or, uh, Marine, an officer or an enlisted, a chance to uh, build a, a wealth of skills to apply them in multiple different scenarios, uh, and then uh, to really become a uh, subject matter expert uh, in, the, in, in their field. That's uh, well-rounded and very topical to today's challenges. And, and on the Navy side, I think it was a big objective of the, the new engine contract recompete to collapse NMCI and OneNet and all the different enclaves into a single coherent structure. Can you give us an update on how that's gone? Is that progressing as quickly as you would like to see? I mean, uh, my greatest strength is impatience. It's also my greatest weakness. So um, is it ever going fast enough? No. Uh, but uh, it is making great strides. Uh, in fact, uh, the flank speed program is now on the cusp of starting to, to deploy into OneNet. There's a network consolidation program that's going to take literally hundreds of accepted uh, and legacy networks and put them through uh, a process uh, to look at what needs to be folded into that uh, enterprise network. So uh, we are seeing in the future, uh, and hopefully the near future, that true convergence of all those separate networks on the Navy side. The Marine Corps has already done that to the greatest extent. They, they will wax poetic about deploying the mix in forward. Uh, I love the Marine Corps. Um, and so uh, I think it's bringing the Navy along with that 
it's a process, um, but great strides are being made here. I, I was just going to give Jen the chance to brag about the Marine Corps' <laughs> progress on, on network modernization. What's that allowed you to do once you're in a place where you can say that you've got one network now? So it really opens up uh, the, the doors to have, I'll say, the varsity level discussion. Um, so we did a lot of really hard work of collapsing uh, domains. Uh, we did a lot of hard work in the design of, when we say the Mixen, uh, that means the entirety of our network. And our network being our infrastructure, our platforms, our security, our data, and our software services. And we didn't get there by, by chance. Uh, we did a lot of data analysis. We did a lot of bringing folks together. We did a lot of design thinking work. Uh, because, and this resulted in really our, uh, our keystone document uh, that kind of took this invisible space that people couldn't see and put down what does our future look like. Um, and this was called our uh, Marine Corps Information Environment Blueprint. So think of it this way. Would you ever hire a roofer, a framer, a plumber, an electrician and say, build me a house and send me the bill later? No. You would, uh, you would actually bring those folks together. You would make a design. You would talk about how these different subsystems need to work together. We did that. We did that in our, for our Mixen. It was not, it was, it, and this is hard because it's not, um, super flashy work uh, that you, know, you have robots running around, but this is vital, necessary work that you have to do in order to prepare yourselves to go after that next level of uh, technology, that next level of uh, operations, that next level of business process. And so because we did that hard work and we really stayed the course, and it was hard, it was hard to bring the stakeholders together, it was hard to make the business case, it was hard to make the mission case, but once we broke through that, now our discussions are changing. Our discussions aren't should we, it's how might we do this differently in the future? How do we want it to work? Uh, against our force design uh, 2030 objectives. We're not having the discussion of, you know, is the green light still blinking? It's, it's having the discussion of how are we going to use this to our strategic advantage in the information environment. That's Jennifer Edgen, the Marine Corps' Assistant Deputy Commandant for Information, along with Aaron Weiss, the Department of the Navy's CIO. That was an excerpt from a panel discussion I moderated at this year's Sea Air Space Conference in National Harbor, Maryland. Earlier in the hour, we talked with Jason Weiss, DOD's first-ever software modernization officer, who's now headed back to the private sector. If you missed that discussion, find this week's full show and all our past episodes at federalnewsnetwork.com slash ondod, or subscribe to ondod in podcast form wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week's edition of ondod. Thanks, as always, for tuning in. I'm Jared Servio. So You've been listening to On DoD on Federal News Network. Tune in Wednesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.